This show is sponsored by IdealWorkspace.com, which promotes a healthier way of working through their adjustable standing desk. Check out their latest smart adjustable standing desk at Altizen.com. A-L-T-I-Z-E-N.com. Welcome to Analyze Asia, the podcast dedicated to dissect the pulse of business, technology, and media in Asia. In this episode, I speak to Charles Reed Anderson from IDC and we review the state of the Internet of Things in Asia-Pacific for the first half of 2016 and how China, India and the rest of Asia are moving in the IoT space. Hi Charles. Hello Bernard, how are you? I'm well. Today I'm sitting in your office in IDC, right? Yes, we are. Yes, and I'm talking to Charles Anderson, Vice President, Head of Mobility and Internet of Things for Asia-Pacific IDC. Charles, we have recently spoke in the Internet of Things Asia conference at the Expo in Singapore, which actually covers a lot of area, and I thought that it would be great because you have done a couple of very interesting presentations that's highly tweeted, and you are probably the top leader in the IoT space across Asia-Pacific. So it's based on a set of slides that you talk about. It's called... The Internet of Things, what's hot, what's not, and what's next. So I want to start off by asking you a little bit about the overview of the Internet of Things industry so far. What are the actual market opportunity and what has been going on? Okay, well we still see the market growing quite a bit. We're still expecting in Asia Pacific to reach about 8.6 billion connected things by 2019. And that will generate over half a billion dollars, or half a trillion dollars, so $508 billion the market opportunity. We expect to see a lot of the growth to be coming in areas where people are going to focus more on operational efficiencies versus revenue generating, but we can go into that one a bit more later on. So when we talk about 8.6 billion things, Mm -hmm. and this is usually the question people ask me even in the company about what do we think of IoT, what does those 8.6 billion things comprise of then? When we look at it in Asia Pacific, we break it down by 43 different types of solutions, but the ones that are really driving a lot of it now be around things like smart meters, SCADA networks, you know, it could be doing predictive maintenance on equipment. What I expect to start driving a lot of that number going forward is going to be in automobiles. I got to see um, a presentation by Audi recently, and they're talking about the new Audi A8, and it's going to have between 6,000 and 8,000 sensors in a single automobile, depending on the model you get. But also a lot of it's going to be around smart buildings. I'm doing some work with a startup in London, just looking at the smart building space, and one of their customers has 170,000 sensors in one building, and he says that's relatively typical. How do one access the IoT market maturity in 2019? I, one of the slides that you put up during the talk was, that was really interesting was the so-called IoT units per capita, and you actually looked through the entire Asia-Pacific. I think you talk about you look, there's data on India, Philippines, all the way to Singapore, New Zealand, South Korea, and Australia. So can you talk a little bit about that slide and what are some of the important findings from that? Now, this is something that I've been doing with one of my colleagues for the past few years, and it's just a different way to look at the numbers, because it's great to show the high-level number in a specific country, but if you then look at how many units are being deployed per capita, you get a better idea about the full penetration in that country. So the leading countries are going to be South Korea and Australia, you know, both of them having over eight per capita by 2019. But what's interesting is they're using very different use cases. So Australia originally drove a lot of it through the mining industry, healthcare, and our government, In Korea, it's a lot more on high-end manufacturing, automation, robotics, as well as in the consumer space. Some of the other interesting ones, New Zealand comes in third place in the region, and a lot of that is about connecting up livestock. So we're forecasting that nearly two livestock for every person in the country are going to be connected by 2019. China comes in at about mid-tier. Even though it's going to be a massive market opportunity, if you look at it per capita, it's got a long room to grow, and it's only just a 
little over a third the size, so a third of the penetration that you have in South Korea and Australia. So that shows you that even in 2019, it's going to be relatively mature, but there's a lot of room for it to grow. So this, the opportunities in China will have a long tail. India, on the other hand, comes in the lowest in the region. Part of that's due just to the very large population. We are seeing a lot of initiatives, but a lot of them have been slowed down. It seems to be losing a lot of the buzz about those hundred smart cities in India. just looks like a lot of those won't be getting funding in the near term. So that comes in at under one still. So that's at 0.6 units connected per capita. Specifically on the data point on China, because China has different cities in terms of tiers, the first tier, the second tier, yeah. and all the way down to the fourth tier cities. The IoT market maturity value you place is the average value. Yeah. Do you foresee the first and second tier to be much more mature versus when you go to the third and the fourth tier where the infrastructure is still not ready for building? Or it could be the other way around. Yeah, I think it's going to be, as a whole, I think you're correct in making that assumption. But what you're going to see is a lot of people doing projects in the tier three and tier four cities, but around food or around specific initiatives. So I know there's one going on right now in a smart town, and it's all about food traceability, where you're actually trying to connect it from the farm all the way to the plate. And that's, you know, it's easier to undertake those types of initiatives in a tier four type city than it is in a tier one. You can have smart traffic lights on a tier 4 city then, as compared to, say, a first tier city like Shanghai or Beijing. Yeah, yeah. So, but you can still drive. And I think it's most, I mean, all the cities will do it because it drives efficiencies and helps them save money. So I think everyone will do it. But yes, of course, you'll see a lot more penetration in places like Shanghai and Beijing. So what have we seen back in 2015 and now we're in the first half of the 2016? Well, I think like what, what I've seen recently, and this is because I talked to a lot of the different governments around the region, most of the major vendors share their strategies with me. I mean, I get to talk to a lot of end user customers and I think I do probably normally about 50 events a year on the topic. So I get a lot of insights to what's going on and what's happened a lot in the last six to nine months is a lot of the buzz or the hype has worn off. People are wondering what's going to happen next. And I think what's happened is when everyone started announcing their smart city initiatives, all the vendors get excited. But what's happening now is people realize the level of complexity. These things aren't that simple. No one's writing blank checks to just go out there and fund these initiatives. When you look at the planning process, you're going to have hundreds, if not thousands, of individual projects to create a smart city. We have a skill shortage in the region. So even if you want to do some of these initiatives, where are you going to find the headcount? And to be honest, a lot of the cities haven't kept up to date with their technology. They might have a great strategy for what they want to do, but their underlying infrastructure actually isn't prepared yet to actually take it on and support it going forward. Specifically, if you were to look from now to the future, what are the things that we need to do? For example, the reality check itself. On the reality check, I think a lot of it's about planning and creating a proper PMO. So the cities that have done like, probably the best in region are going to be Singapore and Taipei. Both of those countries have focused, a lot of cities have focused on driving the PMO first. They got people in place to actually help manage the complexity of this. And also what they're starting to do is really work on the branding and marketing of their smart city initiatives. Because the problem we have is, as citizens, we, we hear about a lot of these things, but we don't know what's going on. So they understand the importance of it. And, and let's face it, if you're trying to manage all those projects, if you try to do it in a haphazard way, it's going to be a disaster. So it's investing up front, getting that PMO in. And I really think that's a very large market opportunity going forward is people who can help manage that complexity. Just based on your talk, because I like the three areas, what's hot, what's not, and what's next. So I'm going to start from what's hot first. Okay. Well, there was two that I talked about in this one. And one of them is called, I just say, it's below the surface innovation. And, and this goes back to some of this hype wearing off around smart cities. And I think the problem is that us as citizens, we don't see the citizen services changing very dynamically yet. So we think nothing's actually going on. But if you actually look below the surface, what you see is 
you know, cities are investing a lot in smart lighting. You're seeing connected street lights, smart building initiatives, predictive analytics and maintenance and assets, whether it's a vehicle or equipment, traffic monitoring. So a lot of these things are actually being deployed today, but they're not things that we as citizens actually see. So a lot of this innovation is happening, but it's stuff that's not in the public eye because, let's face it, it's not always that sexy. We want to see some flashy new device that's going to change the way we live. In reality, a lot of the value comes from these things that just help you drive city efficiencies. So it's a bit like having a smart traffic light. It's different from the current traffic lights we have. The current yeah. traffic light only show you the three color lights and then basically automated at a certain point yeah. in time. But now the traffic light has to actually transmit information into the car and it's not something simple yeah. because I find when I talk to people about an autonomous vehicle they always come to say oh it's pretty easy they just install the traffic but I think the underlying infrastructure is not that simple right? Yes. No, it's very complex. I think we oversimplify it at times, but I'm a big fan of connected streetlights and of traffic lights just because it's a site. And anything is a site, you can stick extra sensors on. So you can start putting in more environmental uh, tagging on there, start capturing the information. And a great example for Singapore, we have the haze problem occasionally when it comes over from Indonesia. And what we can do is get a breakdown and it says, you know, this is the, the level of haze in north, south, east and west. If you start sticking sensors on some of these existing sites, you know, you can break it down to neighborhood levels because I want to know where I should be hiding when this haze gets bad. So what are the market drivers for IoT then? The drivers, it's not really about revenue generation right now. Very similar to what we saw in the early days of mobility. So the companies that we survey, and we normally survey about 1,000 people um, in Asia. I think this year was just about 840. It'll be increased a bit now. It's all about increasing productivity, quality and time to market, automating existing processes, cutting costs, and faster and better decision-making. In Asia-Pacific specifically, what are the top five IoT use cases? Once again, this is going to go to much more around operational excellence. So mm-hmm. the things we see are, number one, driving manufacturing operations, and that could be predictive maintenance solutions. Freight monitoring is number two. Number three is production asset management. Number four is smart grids, and this is a massive opportunity in every country. And number five is smart buildings. I'm a big fan of the fifth one because smart buildings applies across everything. Every industry, every smart city, opportunities to leverage that solution. And usually smart buildings is something that is peripheral, that's added to the current infrastructure, right? Yeah, there's a lot of information is already going to be captured. But what we're seeing now is a lot of these new startups are finding new and innovative ways to actually share that data. And not only just transmit the data back to the people who are managing the facility, but also create action items for them and help them manage the process to ensure that you identify a problem, but it also makes you complete that problem. And I thought what was interesting from the slide that you have was actually 12% of the Asia-Pacific enterprises actually see IoT as an opportunity for revenue generation, which means that actually we're still in the very early days. Yeah, people are uh, starting to realize it's easier to get funding approved when it saves money, and all those top five use cases will help drive down costs. It's more difficult to go out there about something in the future where I may be able to drive new revenue streams in the back of it. But mm. it's good to see that at least 12% are looking at it. Once we start seeing some successful use cases, hopefully that will go up. How do that contribute to operation excellence, I guess? Um, well, I think if you look at what they're doing, it's about increasing the quality and the speed to market, it's about driving efficiencies in their operations. But in reality, all of these investments right now tend to be business case driven. Since you're not driving the benefit side as much you know, as far as new revenue streams, what you're actually focusing on is cutting costs right now. And almost all these initiatives help you save money. 
And that's why they get approved. That's why people invest in them. And this is where we have a lot of proven use cases today. So where are the Asia-Pacific IoT initiatives that are focused in 2015? They're still very domestically focused right now. So what we found out is that 8% of the initiatives were internationally focused in 2015. And that's from the Asian companies we surveyed. But the good news is 54% of them plan to take their IoT initiatives international. Now, this is going to create a lot of challenges because what you have to think about is what networks will have these work on going forward. Is it going to be a we leverage mobile technology going to be an unlicensed spectrum like a Sigfox or LoRa? But it does create a lot of opportunities for the larger vendors as well. Since it's so domestically focused now, a lot of the systems integrators that are helping can just be domestic. But if you want to take all these international, then what you really need to do is there will be international SIs freaking in a lot of the uh, the money on this in the end. So what factors are actually hindering the IoT solutions in Asia-Pacific? To flip the question around, what kind of challenges they must address then? The challenges on this one, a lot of it relates to security. It always comes across the top. And I'll be honest with you, I question whether or not that's true. And I think this is what happens with a lot of new technology. And I've been doing enterprise mobility since well below the, before the BlackBerry. And this has always come up. But when someone first starts out in a new technology area, they tend not to have any resources, they tend not to have any funding. So it's really easy to say, well, I'd like to do it, but I'm concerned about security. What I find when I talk to end users and they say this, and I ask them, well, which endpoints are you concerned about? Or which data in transit or data sets, where are you concerned? A lot of times they don't have the answers yet. So that's one thing, but I think that's addressable. What's more concerning about the challenges, and this has happened two years in a row in our survey, the number two and number three ranked reasons and challenges that they face are all about financial related. So it's either CapEx or OpEx. So how are you going to drive an ROI? So we just said that all these things are business case driven, but the enterprises that are doing them don't know the costs associated with it. So how can they actually go and create this business case? So when I talk to vendors, I tell them, you better have somebody internally who can create the business case for your customer. Otherwise, the sales cycle is never going to end. I run digital. So one of the questions that always have to think about is not just the security from the perspective of the data, the encryption of the data, but also the security from the data privacy of the users, which always come up because of in Singapore, we have what is called the Personal Data Protection Act, which I think is similar in the US, Mm -hmm. etc. I'm not Every part of Asia does that, but is that one of those kind of challenges where people conflict security, not just with infrastructure security, but also consumer security, and they bundle it together, and then they really don't know what they want? There's a lot of worries around it, and I think if if you look across Asia, I mean, Singapore's at the forefront as far as setting up data privacy laws, but a lot of countries are behind the game on this because they don't know what the citizens themselves are actually willing to accept. So this is the problem. Even though something might be legal, companies are afraid to do it because they don't want that consumer backlash. Then who holds the budget in the decision-making process? I guess, which group actually drove the IT solution decision? This is quite interesting. So when we look at it worldwide, about a third of the budgets are going to be held by the line of business, and two-thirds are going to be held by IT. And that stays true across Asia-Pacific, Korea, and India. So very slightly, but it's still very much dominated by IT. However, when you go to Singapore, 54% of the IoT budgets are held by the line of business. Then you go to Australia, and it's 68%. Now, what you need to start doing is looking at the use cases that are driving those countries. So in Singapore, for example, it will be related to manufacturing and smart cities. So those will sit more in the line of business than in the IT side. And in Australia, around mining and healthcare, energy, it's definitely more the operational technology side that would hold those budgets. The odd one in this is that China comes in the lowest. 
Only 16% of budgets are held by the line of business and 84% by IT. So I think that still has a lot of room for to switch over more towards the line of business. So why is it specifically, for example, Singapore, Australia, the line of business is holding most of the IoT budget and not the other way around? It is going to come down to those use cases. And if you look at mining, the people who make the decisions and make all the investments sit on that operational side. Of course, you know, if you're driving large mining equipment and if you look at how Rio Tinto has been automating their plants, the mine sites, that budget already sits in the line of business there. I mean, if you're a more traditional industry, like in financial services, a lot of that budget would be sitting within IT. So it's just the industries that are actually driving it are pushing it across more. Uh, then I'm coming to the what's not piece. I guess I want to start from wearables because, I mean, if you look at the public markets now, Fitbit is not doing well in the, in the public markets. What's happened to the wearable space and why is this happening? I think what you have is there's, just, there's too many devices and we're getting too little value out of them. And I'm a big believer in wearable technology, but I know that the ecosystem has to evolve and we need to find value out of what can be done in those devices. Right now, too much of it is just related to notifications. We need to find out what types of apps or use cases can be enabled through these wearable devices. Until that happens, I think it's gonna be very difficult for these people to take off. Now you mentioned Fitbit, and this is an interesting one because they had their IPO back about uh, June, July last year. And it came out at about 30. And then it peaked up just over 50 about a month and a half, two months later. And then when it came up to CES this year in January, stock had driven back down to about its launch point, so about 30. And they launched their new device, uh, the new smartwatch. And it's actually a very nice device. It's very comparable to what you would get in functionality out of an Apple Watch. But when that launched, it actually, the share price dropped 30% that day. So the stock market's demanding more. They don't want just another Me Too solution. So as a result of that, another couple months went by, and then they missed their earnings forecast. Shares dropped another 20%. Consumers demanding more as well, and I think this is going to be a trend. There's too many of these solutions that are pretty much the same. There's no differentiation. Why am I going to keep buying the next one if I don't get any more utility or value out of it? And I think one of the other challenges we're going to say, and just to give you an idea how crazy this market is, there's currently over 4,000 smart device startups in China alone, and what we're forecasting is that 80% of those vendors will be eliminated by 2018. Wow, that's a lot. So what would be the next wave of the wearables then? I, I think you're going to see, instead of trying to put everything onto one device, they're going to go down to single-purpose devices. And what I'm hoping this will be will be something on the back of uh, Samsung's new initiative with SimBand. It's actually been around for a couple of years. This band has 21 different medical sensors, and it's been in testing, and they're working with some of the world's top scientists to generate the business models in the back of that. But what I'd like to see is a band that monitors um, somebody who might have diabetes or chronic high blood pressure. Or you start where using a band that can help get somebody out of a hospital bed a day early. So if you have surgery, you're supposed to be in there for three days. If you can actually effectively and accurately monitor them, you can get them out a day earlier. It'll change the whole operating model behind the healthcare industry. So the kind of examples that you talk about in terms of wearables seems to be all geared towards the healthcare industry. Is, it, is that where the major market growth is going to get? That's what my view is. I think that this, this is the most exciting space because there's so much that could be done. We'll run into a lot of problems with government regulations. Some countries are not that quick to adapt the new technology, so it might take them longer to do it. But I do think it's an area that's just ripe for up with opportunity. I think you'll also start seeing manufacturing industries start using this a lot more. My favorite use case for a smartwatch is actually from Bosch. They have a plant in South Carolina. They used to send out their predictive maintenance on the equipment to a smartphone. But because people in the plant, it gets cold, they wear a jacket. So the phone's in there, they can't feel it vibrating. And because it's noisy, they can't hear it ringing. So even though they knew a machine was about to break down, they couldn't go out there and fix it in time. 
So they've actually put that knot on into a smartwatch and it actually vibrates on your wrist and everyone's aware of it when it comes in. So they've been able to save tons of downtime and deliver very positive ROI back to the company. That's interesting. So what are the different approaches in the conversation to shift the what's not to what's yes for Internet of Things? Well, this is a tricky one. I think a lot of it is about the way we think about the problem. And right now, we're trying to you know, just do the things, same things we've always done. And there's a quote from uh, last year's IoT Asia event um, with a guy who leads up huge experience for Google, Scott Jensen. He said, we're solving yesterday's tasks with tomorrow's technology. And this is the whole thing. We're connecting a lot of things because we can. Like There's always this, the examples of the connected fork. Do we really need to connect a fork? And what I think needs to happen is, you know, we need to flip it around and actually start changing the way we look at these things. So don't sit there and have a fork and try and take that out. Look at business processes or users and figure out what they're doing and try and backfill it with the technology. So instead of pushing it on the market, really look at how somebody lives, works, or plays and find ways you can improve it by leveraging some of these technologies. And you talk about transforming smart buildings using the demand logic example during your yeah. talk, right? The demand logic is a startup out of London that's probably the most impressive company I've come across in years. And I like it because it just makes sense. It's not the flashiest technology, but what it does is it works with any building management system. They all run on the same protocol, BACnet. They can integrate across the multiple vendors into a single platform. And what they really do is they help you filter down the information and give you prioritized alerts. And that basically allows you to start initiating actions and tracking the progress of those actions. I also like it because, you know, it's an OpEx one, uh, OpEx-based model, and then a lot of the customers are getting an ROI in as little as two months. And when I first met them about a year ago um, at a smart city event in Nice, I was asking a lot of questions and I was then convinced, like, well, how are you ever going to scale? Because installations got to take a long time. And I guess their average installation is well under half a day and the record installation is 20 minutes. This company, what they've been able to do is it just changed the whole approach. They go in there and I've seen them in front of customers at a couple of different events. And I'm amazed at how many people just, just flock to him afterwards because he's talking the language that these people want to hear. He's not coming to them, explaining to them more information, whatever. He's going there saying, you've got all these different problems. I solve the problems for you. Because they flipped that conversation, they're picking up very, very large customers. So they do people like Transport for London, King's College in London. Um, a lot of the big high-rises um, through like RBS, BT, they're not starting out little getting mom-and-pop shops. They're going to some of the biggest buildings in London and actually winning the deals. So what's next then? What's next? I, th- I think these are the two buzzwords we're going to hear a lot more about. One of them is a cool buzzword. One of them is just pretty not, not too sexy, so I don't think it'll take off as far a name. But the first one's about IoT at the edge, and this is more about analytics and us processing the analytics at the edge. And we're forecasting that in Asia-Pacific, 35% IoT created data will be stored, analyzed, and acted on at the edge. And that's important because it saves a lot of money and a lot of processes. It makes you more agile, speeds up your decision-making process, um, and it allows these things that we have to communicate directly together without doing it all centrally. How does one establish the business case for IoT to work? I mean, for example, I think you talk a little bit of not just in the IoT at the edge of the city, but you also talk about smart meter costs from mm-hmm. there. That gets more into like the low-power WAN one. So this is the second one. which Low-power WAN is definitely not going to become a buzzword because it's just not sexy enough. But I do think it's something that's going to be very dynamic and change a lot of business models. And there's two real different models in this right now. One of them is called narrowband IoT. And this will be through some of the big equipment manufacturers like Huawei. And it's backed by a group called 3GPP, which is 30 of the largest operators in the world are backing this technology. And the whole idea is that it will allow mobile operators to do more connected SIMs, but at a lower price point. 
because it more efficiently will utilize the access points. Um, right now, we're going to be limited to how many things we connect. This should open it, this up. The other ones are going to be from Sigfox and LoRa, and these are using unlicensed spectrum. I think if I'm correct, it's based on old World War II submarine technology that allows you to communicate at a wide distance. All these solutions are about sending very small bits of information. So you're not going to send HD video on it, and what you're going to be sending is small bytes, but you can track assets. So think about your pets, um, your livestock, or smart meters. And this is the one I like about smart meters, because in smart meters, 20%, just under 20% of the cost for deploying a smart meter relates to the connectivity. And what we know is right now in 2015, depending on which country in Asia you go to, you're paying $12 to $60 per year to deploy a smart meter, just for the connectivity costs. Now, when we look at these low-power WAN solutions, and no one's come out with definitive pricing, but we can look at it anecdotally, and we know what people like Sigfox and Laura charge in Europe, we're looking this could be dropped to $1 to $12 per year. Basically means you're dropping out that whole connectivity cost. 20% of your business case is going to go away. Also, if you use someone like Sigfox, you don't need gateways, so your hardware costs go down as well. So what we're going to see is that because the costs are going to go down, it will allow us to connect a lot more things. And I'm very, very bullish on this, but what I'm very worried about is we still need the ecosystem to evolve. What we now have is another enabling technology. We're going to have low power, low or connectivity that's very low cost, but where are the applications and you know the analytics people around this? So we're going to develop the solutions that can actually leverage it. Given that all this is happening, what keeps you up at night? What are the things on the internet of things that is now getting you to think about and that that would be driving you for the next half of 2016 going into the 2017 and to 2019 then? When I look at it right now, what keeps me awake at night is that it's not the technology that's causing us the problems. And we've built up great sets of technology to drive these solutions. What's missing is people who understand how to look at a process or a use case and create a solution from it that way. And I think it's much more us as humans that are going to be limiting this. The other thing I'm very worried about is how are we going to deliver it? We don't have a lot of the skills necessary. And just think about this for a minute. If you've got 100 smart cities in India, 1,000 are really, I mean, if you go to the tier fours, you're talking thousands in China, but 250 in the tier one, tier twos. Everybody's doing this. Where are we going to get the resources? We just don't have the industry actually to support this. So luckily, not everyone has funding yet, so not everyone's going live. But I, th- I think that a lot of the problems we're going to have with this and the challenges are not going to be technology-related. They're going to be man-made. Oh, so you also be doing with mass customization and mass production costs as well. So those are the kind of things that's going to be mm-hmm. the issue. Yes. So, so Charles, it's always a pleasure to talk to you and everything. We should talk a lot more about the IoT stuff, but tell my audience, where do they find you? Um, I can be found at LinkedIn under Charles Reed Anderson, or you can find me on Twitter at CRA Singapore. And you can find me at blongcwrbernalong.com. Subscribe to us at Analyze Asia, A-N-A-L-Y-S-E. We can be found in iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, ACAST, and now on Google Play, but only for the U.S. market. And once again, Charles, I think it's great to talk to you, and I'm sure we are going to have more conversations on that. I hope so. It's always a good time. Thanks a lot, Bernard.